Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. We are super excited for a couple of things. First thing is that we have a brand new audio stream. A brand new processor that is feeding our brand new audio stream, and uh, it's pretty darn cool. So if you want to check that out, asknoahshow.com. Take a look at that. Tell me what you think. And uh, I, I would love to get your feedback on it. What we've been able to do, you guys, is absolutely incredible. We've been able to take what was a almost, uh, I think we were at like 300 and maybe it wasn't quite that high. We're, we're up hundreds of kilobits. I don't know exactly where it is, but uh, I wasn't the one that set that up. But what I know now is that we have brought it down to uh, 64 kilobits per second. And what that will do is mean that when you're, uh, when you're streaming on your mobile device, things are just going to sound a lot better. Things are going to work a lot better. We're excited about that. And, uh, and so check that out. Ask Noah Show. Dot com. Now, the first thing I want to do, because I'm super, super, super excited to do this, is we have a contest going on in our Telegram group. You can join that uh, Telegram group at telegram.asknoahshow.com, and there you'll be entered to win our big prize, which is a $160 gift certificate to Amazon.com. Now, this week, we drew a, um, we drew a, uh, a winner for the 800th person. So it really wasn't we drew, but we have a winner for our 800th member that joined the Telegram group. So we're going to give him a call. We're going to wish him the best of luck, and we are going to uh, ship him out a gift card. Now, if you missed out on that and you want to join the fun, it's not too late. You can you can still enter. Go to telegram.asknoahshow.com, put your name in the basket, and we will draw next week one winner who will not win just an $80 gift certificate to Amazon.com, which the 800th winner is going to win, but a $160 gift card to Amazon.com. So it's like, it's kind of like twice as big. The reason we do that is because we want to encourage the group to grow. We want to encourage growth of the community, but not at the expense of everybody else. And so the only way that we can think to do that fairly is because if you were in there from day one, we don't want to punish you. We want to thank you because we appreciate your support. Your support of the community is why we keep doing the show. So for that reason, we are going to let anybody enter the drawing over the next week, and we'll draw and win that $160 uh, gift card. So let's, uh, let's, get, let's see if I can get my phone up in here, and let's give this guy a call and let him know that he won his gift card. Hello, this is Chris. Hey, Chris. This is Noah from the Ask Noah Show. How are you, sir? Well, I'm fine, Noah. Hey, good to hear from you. Yeah, good to talk to you. Hey, I just wanted to call and let you know that you are the winner of our $80 Amazon gift card. No way. Say it isn't true. <laughs> I just wanted to give you a call and let you know that. And uh, so do you have any plans? Is there anything that you needed off of Amazon, maybe Linux-related? 
Well, you know, Amazon and I are a prime member, or I should say I am a prime member of Amazon, and I shop there quite frequently. So not uh, only are you going to be able to spend eighty dollars, but you're going to get your uh, you're going to get your your whatever it is delivered quickly. Well, that's good. That's good. I, uh, I can always use uh, an extra few bucks for Amazon. We know how that is. I absolutely do. Well, Chris, I'm going to put you back on hold. I'm going to have Sarah pick up, get your particulars, and then uh, we'll get that gift card sent out to you in just the next couple of minutes. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks for being a listener of the show. Good to talk to you, Noah. Glad that uh, this guy was able to win. I'm super happy for him. But like I said, the biggest uh, the biggest thing, the biggest prize comes actually in the next week. So we'll probably do that drive. I, can't, I don't want to promise an exact time. I'll, I want to give myself, I'll say Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday. We have a busy week coming up next week. We're going to tell you more about that as the show goes on. Exciting things to come involving uh, basically setting up a wisp, more, more or less, and, uh, and setting up some encrypted camera streams and very, very cool network-based uh, stuff, owning your own technology, all that kind of thing, without any help from the cloud. Again, we'll talk about more of that as the show goes on. But as always, your calls go to the front of the line at one 855 No, it's 855-450-6624. George calls from New York. Hey, George, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Pretty good, George. How can we help? Well, I actually called the last episode, I believe, uh, you answered my question about, um, I believe, uh, Mage... Uh, like video cards so I could kind of capture the like incoming video to stream to like the web and stuff. Yes, 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 I remember. Yeah, we talked about the the Magwell USB capture cards for Linux. Yes, yes. And before all of that actually I called back in, way back when in episode 42, uh you gave me some more advice on um I had issues with my Bluetooth speak uh headphones. There was a delay. Okay. And yep. you, you were able to help me out. So um, actually, I had, I found a, another solution to that that helped me out a little bit more. Um, I don't know what the command was, but I ran it, and it kind of showed that there were uninstalled modules, I guess, for the Bluetooth. Really? So, um, yeah, no, it was weird. But I found the solution on the ArchWiki. They actually give you, like, a solution how to do it. You had to, like, kind of... Uh, pull the firmware from the Windows driver and then rip that somehow. I don't know, like I said, it's in the ArchWiki. And then install those modules, and ever since then I haven't had any issues. So I figured I would, you know, share that in case anyone else was uh, having issues with the same thing that I had. Yeah, man, if you don't mind, can I pick your brain about that for a second? So this is fascinating to me. So what you're telling me is you, you downloaded a, a essentially a driver for Windows and somehow got that installed on your Linux system to run the Bluetooth subsystem? Is that is that correct? Uh, yeah, from the direction from what I remember, because it was, I think it's been back since January, um, they had you get a download, I guess, the Windows driver, and then they had you kind of go into the driver and extract, uh, I forget which file, but like a, some type of file, and then you uh, would transfer that over and, and copy to uh, one of the folders in your, I guess, the root folder. Wow, that's interesting, man. That's really cool. And yeah, so, and you and you found this by googling on the on the arch. Or you, I assume you were going through the arch wiki and uh, and f found that solution and 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 then applied that. That's how you came across it. Yeah, actually, for um for the on the arch wiki, they give you like a, I guess if you had issues, um, I guess get installing the modules for Bluetooth, they actually told you install these if you're having issues with like a Bluetooth headphone or speakers. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and it worked. I didn't have any issues with the delay anymore. 
Well, thank you very much for letting us know and bringing that to our attention. That's the kind of thing where I always say, that's why I always say this is a community show, right? Like there's a, there's a couple people that say, well, how, you know, you know, they, they call this one guy and they ask the, ask, ask the question, but the truth of the matter, and George, you're a perfect example of this. A lot of people don't call on the phone and say this. A lot of people, they'll tweet or they'll send an email or whatever, and that's fine. We appreciate in, feedback however you want to get it to us. We're available everywhere. We're available in the Telegram group. We're available by email. Of course, we're available by phone. Um, social, you know, Twitter and, and Facebook, all of those things. We are welcome to take feedback that way. But what's fantastic about what you're doing, George, I just want to thank you so much, is you are giving back to the community and participating in a constructive way. So the next person that is struggling with Bluetooth, if they have listened to the show and they've kind of followed the progression of the show, they know about the issue. Now they have a really solid solution. Would there be any chance, George, I could get you to send me or email me a link to that uh, entry in the ArchWiki so we can include it in the show notes for anybody that's listening? I was just about to ask if you wanted me to uh, send it to like the Telegram group or something, but uh, yeah, no. If I could, when I find it, I'll uh, shoot you an email and I'll also uh, send it to the uh, Telegram group. Hey, just real quickly, it's not the Foxconn uh, Han High 2F light on Broadcom device, is it? Um, I, I, I suppose you don't have the link I, in front of you. I have the uh, yeah, yeah. No, I just have, I just know I have the. Uh, if anyone else has the same. Dell XPS 13. Um, I don't have the Intel uh, Wi-Fi card with the Intel Bluetooth, so I guess that's kind of why I maybe had some issues with it before. Sure. Yeah, I, I the uh, the the chat room has found an entry to the ArchWiki, so we weren't sure if that was it or not. But yeah, if you just, I, I, it's kind of a mean question to ask here on the air. Why would you have that link in front of you? It's not like we, you know, it's not common or proper to to read links over the phone anyway, right? So, but yeah, I will. Uh, I'll keep a look out for that email. If you can just send it to live at asknoahshow.com, and uh, I'll include that link in the show notes. I thank you very much, George, for your time. No problem. Thank you. Have a good night. Yeah. Thanks for calling back again. That, ladies and gentlemen. Is true participation is true community participation, and and George is not the only one. Like I say, there are a lot of people. Uh, just last week, we were talking about a couple of things, and um, as soon as I got off the air, I started to I started to look at uh, at my Twitter feed and email all over the place. There are people that are making recommendations, and I have to tell you, it just it really makes me happy because that arms me with the tools that I need to continue to do the show, and I don't feel like I'm a zombie here just talking to myself in the microphone. Again, phone lines, one 855 noah It's 855-450-6624. Zabbix 4.0 LTS. That was released. Now, Zabbix is a really cool piece of software. I, we have not talked about it in depth on the Ask Noah show. I suspect that this is going to be one of the things that we are going to take a deep dive in probably very shortly. If you are not using Zabbix, you need to be. If you have any amount of servers or network equipment... Honestly, if I'm being if I'm leveling with you, going into an environment that doesn't that does not have Zabbix installed feels to me like driving my car with my eyes closed. I don't know how people troubleshoot networks. I don't know how people keep an eye on what their network is doing if they're not using Zabbix. That's how strongly I feel about it. Zabbix is an open source monitoring software. So essentially what you do is you install Zabbix on a Linux server, only runs on Linux. And um, it monitors the network, it monitors network traffic, servers, it's able to connect, co collect rather network uh, utilization and, and, and give uh, monitoring. It uh, monitors the CPU loads of the various clients that are on the network and the disk space. Now, 
What really stands out to me for Zabbix, actually the first reason I was trying to, I, I was driven to try it, is a lot of these software monitoring platforms work on a server-client relationship. So SimpleHub is a fantastic example of this. And I have nothing bad to say about SimpleHub. Again, we're big fans of SimpleHub. They released a new version, I think, last week. We didn't get a chance to cover it. But it's a fantastic piece of software. We ran all of the updates. They continue. Linux continues to be a first-class citizen. I think it has a severe uh, feature advantage over over uh, TeamViewer as it comes as it relates to to resource monitoring and scripting installs and automating some processes and stuff like that. So certainly, if you have more than one machine, I think it puts leaves TeamViewer in the dust. But the other thing is, it's not just a wine wrapper. Linux is a first class citizen in SimpleHelp, but it's a great example of a server client relationship. And not that there's anything wrong with this architecture, but the idea is that you install the SimpleHelp server. On a, on, a, on a device, and then you install a remote client access agent on each of the computers that you want to get to, and that access agent talks back to the central server. Now, the advantage of that is that you have a central point for all of the devices to report in, and so you can do heartbeat monitoring to notify you if a computer goes offline, if a machine goes offline, if a client goes offline. It also allows you to do things like keep antivirus definitions up to date if it's a Windows client, it allows you to uh, look at when that computer was last active. So, for example, one of the features that we use all the time is the ability to look and say, when was the last time somebody moved the mouse or ran the keyboard? And that lets me know if they're just looking at their screen reading something or if they stepped out to lunch, that kind of thing. So it's a great, it's a great architecture. It works really well. The problem with that is we have to touch every single machine that we want to manage. Now, some of you out there are listening and you're saying, no, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. If you're going to get remote access to somebody's machine, you're going to creep on someone's data. There probably should be a, a, a task that is taken on that machine. You should have to touch it, sit down on it, maybe even put in a password, right? Well, that's true if, it, if we're talking about home users. But when you start getting into managed enterprise environments, so we have a lot of clients that have hundreds if not thousands of machines sometimes, and we have to, we're responsible for ma managing all of those machines. Worse yet, some machines, or some companies rather, are a BYOD. That's becoming very, very popular. Bring your own device. I was talking with Chris, I was at uh, JB1 last week, and Chris and I were talking about this. A very popular business model that we are seeing is that people don't have assigned desks. They simply have cubicle workstations, and they assign laptops, and when you get into work, you sit down where you want to sit down, and you work. Google is famous for this. They have couches, they have tables, and you just sit down with your device and you log in. Now, in a network infrastructure like that, how do you provide efficient and practical measuring? It's not really possible. It's, it certainly isn't easy because I am dealing with the fact that people are bringing these computers on to my network and I'm still responsible for monitoring. And so, so the way that we handle that, the, what we have been doing with Zabbix, for example, is Zabbix has an agentless monitoring system. So if you understand SNMP and you understand how SNMP works, then you'll understand how this agentless uh, monitoring of Zabbix is working. It's a very, very similar concept. And so the Zabbix server can sit on the network, and obviously it's not going to gather details um, to the degree that you would get if you installed the remote agent, but certainly you are going to get enough information to be able to keep track of some basic things. How many clients are on the network, for example? How, how much traffic is traversing the network, for example? Um, and so that, that ability to offer both agent-based and agent-less monitoring is just fantastic to me.
So the, if, if you choose to go the agent route, then you install that agent, it collects data, and it reports back to that centralized Zabbix management server. Now, once it gets into that management server, we can do a whole bunch of stuff with it. And that's where Zabbix really starts to show its true power. The first thing you can do is simply log into the very friendly graphical uh, web interface, and you can just look at what's going on. So it gives us real-time data on what's happening on, on the network. Ubiquity is very famous for this, too, in their, in their Unify system. I can log into that system and see, at a moment's glance, how many users are on the network, how many access points are up, how many, if any, have failed, how many, if any, have missed a heartbeat. And we can start to identify problems before the client even knows they're there. Zabbix takes what Unify is doing, and it turns it into a network-wide uh, system. So if you have familiar with the Unify system, anybody that works on enterprise networks probably does. Zabbix is the thing that will do that for you, except it extends it to, you know, basically any device that's on your network, which is just amazing. The second thing that it allows me to do and that we use all the time is we uh, are able to push alerts to our technicians. So, for example, we have critical infrastructure here at Delta Speed Technologies. Absolutely has to be up 110% of the time, no exceptions. Right. People talk about five nines of uptime. I talk about five one hundredths of time. That, that, that's how serious some of this stuff is. Our ticketing system, for example. Right. I, we just literally cannot afford for it to go down. And now that's a bit arrogant because anybody that maintains server for a living will say, well, you can't have 100 percent reliability. No, that's true. You can't. But you can dump enough money in a problem that if one server goes down in one place, you've got five others in in five other places on totally different networks on completely separate service providers, uh, some way to keep make sure that critical infrastructure stays up. The problem, of course, is you have to have a system to let you know or to let your load balancer know you got to move stuff over or, hey, there's a problem, dummy, go fix it. Zappix does that. It gives me a push alert, lets me know something is going awry. Of course, we also use that in client networks. So if the network is experiencing heavy traffic, heavier than normal traffic, or if there are unusual requests that are entering the network, all of those things are flagged and, uh, and sent to me. Now, the, the last thing that we use that Zabbix is particularly good at, and this is, I think, where Zabbix, other than the fact that it's open source and so obviously more secure, this is where Zabbix really sets itself apart again, the reporting. The reporting in... Zabbix is absolutely next level. You can customize a report to show any sort of metrics that you want. You can combine them with various service level agreements. So for those of you who aren't aware, if you were to call to Speed Technologies tomorrow and say that you want us to manage your network, the very, like the very first question we ask is we determine your service level needs. Are you the kind of place that needs your your computers to most of the time work between eight and five, but you know, you do some process word processing here or there. So if the computer system goes down, as long as we get to it within a couple of hours, you're happy. Or are you the kind of business that needs your computers up 100% of the time between eight to five? And of course you don't promise hundred percent of the time, five, nine is the best we get. Or are you the kind of business that needs your, your hospital and people's lives depend on your computer system being up and running that mach those machines, that infrastructure has to run 24, seven, three, six, five. Now, if that's the, depending on where you fall into those categories, we're going to treat you differently, and we are going to provide you uh, with different technology to, to accommodate that. Zabbix allows us to integrate those service level agreements with the monitoring and statistics. So at the end of the year, when we sit down and you try and negotiate us and go, yeah, you know what, AltaSpeed, you're not... Uh, you're not, uh, you're charging us a little bit too much money. We think we deserve a better deal because uh, we don't think that you're doing what you said you were going to do. We can pull out data and say, no, look, 
we told you that your network would be up this often, and here's the data that proves that, yes, it was, and uh, no, we're not cutting you a price break, or, yeah, you were right, and uh, what do we have to do to make you whole? And that level of reporting, that, that, that very straightforward, direct measure of we're, we are doing good or we are not doing good is absolutely invaluable as a business owner. So Zabbix, uh, I believe it was 4, sorry, yeah, 4.0 LTS came out, and I've uh, been playing with it a little bit this week. They have a kiosk mode, which is optimized for video walls. And this is one of those things that when, when they announced this feature, I mean, I can't even, I'm getting giggly just thinking about it. When they announced this feature and I saw that this came out, we have digital signage everywhere. I mean, the, the thing has gone boom, boom, crazy. This is what people call all the time and say, well, we need a, a restaurant wants menus and hotels want waiting lists. Um, so Zabbix now is optimized for these video walls and they support, um, they support this thing where you can have a full screen mode and, uh, and show us what is, what, what is going on as digital signage. Um, and of course, so when we we as soon as that came out, we put it up at Alta Speed, so so we could kind of take a look at that. Um, they have a new compact view mode. It's a they they say that this is a must for network operations center engineers or NOC engineers. And uh, what we're looking at doing with this is uh, is actually putting it up here in the studio because we, if I'm being perfectly honest, I think it will just look really cool to have network information behind us. But uh, it's going to it, it'll let you keep at a at an eye's glance what is going on. Um, with the uh, with the network at all times. Brandon calls from Salt Lake City. Hey, Brandon, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, it's been a while. Hey, man, um, you, you a fan of Zabbix, I hear. I just was calling to, yeah, well, I just calling to just comment on the, you know, I've been using Zab, you know, I've been using Zabbix for a long time, but the, uh, I just, uh, there's like a lot of new uh, stuff and I just wanted to just comment on, on some of those. Please, yeah. Um, if, if that's all right. Yeah. So uh, I actually um, been playing with uh, some new, new technology to like monitor uh, Kubernetes uh, clusters like uh, Prometheus. Uh, that's kind of the uh, de facto thing in for uh, Kubernetes uh, for monitoring the applications and the health of the system. And also another one called Sensu, uh, S E N S U. Yep. Um, and I, I've been a big fan of that one. Yeah, really, I know a few shops have completely replaced Nagios with it, and you know it's just a mo- lot more modern. You know, Zabbix's been around for years. You know, it's kind of the tried and true open source. But I just wanted to comment on just comment on that. I, I appreciate that. Let me ask you this: I have had a lot of people over the years tell me that I should take a more serious look at Nagios, and I I have gotten some sideways looks when I tell people I'm like, yeah, I'm not interested in Nagios. I just I'm not. I have always, every time I've tried to play with Nagios, it always seems to me like it is more complicated to set up and use than it ever really needed to be. And I'm just wondering, am I just that dumb, or is Zabbix just that good? No, I think Zabbix is just that good. Um, I mean, I uh, way back in the day, I used to build uh, plugins for Nagios, and uh, they're uh, a pain to maintain, in my opinion. And uh, Zabbix, I think they're much easier. Completely agree. And uh, so uh, thank you very much. Anything else you want to add from, from playing with the new 4.0 release? None. Uh, that's it. I just wanted to uh, drop in and say hello. It's been a long, uh, long time since I've been on. Yeah, it has. And uh, you know, Brandon, you always have an open invitation uh, to the show. So you give me a call anytime we'll get you on. 
Thanks. Yeah, thank you. 1-855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. If you caught the uh, passing familiarity, that is Brandon Johnson from Red Hat. Uh, interestingly enough, um, Red Hat is going to make another appearance on the show because later in the episode, we're going to try something uh, a little bit different. We're going to try something a little new, and I want to get your feedback on that. So stay tuned for that. Hint, hint, it has to do with Kubernetes and containers. I want to go back to talking a little bit more about uh, about Zabbix because there are still some other cool things to get to. There is a new tag-based permission, and um, this is something that we at Speed Technologies have struggled with for some time. We have everything from me, who needs to be able to, at a moment's notice, step into the shoes of anybody else that works here. On the other hand, we have people all the way up to independent contractors who I meet once, they do a job, and I never see them or hear from them again. We're actually dealing with somebody right now, um, and, uh, and, and this would just fundamentally solve a bunch of problems if we had 4.0 LTS running in production right now. But what this tag-based permission allows you to do is you can give a certain user or a certain group of users certain information about problems only if they match um, some tags or some tag values. And so that, that way we can limit what information that all of our Zabbix users are able to see. Again, this is just absolutely fantastic when you have multiple clients uh, with varying security levels, varying needs, and quite frankly, varying requirement of involvement from our staff. Every person that works here doesn't need to know everything about every client's infrastructure. We track and limit that as best we can because we want to preserve privacy, but oftentimes the tools just don't exist to let us do that. And Zabbix now is giving us the tools so that, hey, you know what? You only work, you're brought in to work on this one client, or these are the only people you need to worry about. You don't need to see anybody else's network information. Absolutely fantastic. Lastly, they have a new HTTP agent, and this opens up just a number of possibilities for collecting uh, availability and performance data, and you can send that information over HTTP or HTTPS. And, of course, then uh, you can... Uh, you can uh, take that information and and reference it with an API or JSON or whatever. Um, and so I haven't, truth be told, it's a feature on the feature list. I haven't had a chance to play with it. Uh, the HTTP, HTTPS sending stuff, frankly, I'm kind of more of a put it on the network and let it gather information that way or install the agent and gather information that way. But um, absolutely a fantastic product. And notice I didn't have to talk about it for more than just a couple of minutes and somebody out there in the audience said, I have to, I have to just back up. What Noah's saying, Zappix is just a really cool piece of technology. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. Librem has released a new two-factor authentication key. This is a two-factor authentication key, much like the YubiKey or the Google Titan key. Now, again, full disclosure, and I, I don't want to just, I don't want to keep repeating the entire two-factor uh, explanation or discussion every single time somebody releases a new product. Suffice to say, two-factor authentication, something you have and something you've known. We've described that before. If you want more information about it, check out a past episode of the Ask Noah Show at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But Purism released this new key, and it, I'll be very honest with you guys. At first, I was highly skeptical. Michael Tunnell from Tux Digital gave me a call when this came out, and he said, hey, did you see this? Purism is releasing a Librem key. What do you think? And, and my initial reaction was, meh, I don't know. Their laptops are pretty good. It's kind of cool. Their smartphones, I think, are kind of cool, if not maybe a waste of time because the world is kind of settled on Android and iOS, and if I wanted to branch outside of Android, I've had excellent luck with uh, some of the alternative ROMs. So not really high on my list. 
Not sure that we needed another um, key, uh, two-factor authentication key. I'm pretty happy with YubiKey. Supported them from day one, have been recommending them from day one, have no plans to change, still don't. And uh, then I started reading more about what Purism is doing here. And I mean, I'm still at the point where I'm not going to go get rid of my YubiKeys. I still think that it's the YubiKey is a superior product. I still think if you're looking for the best two-factor authentication method at the moment, it's still the YubiKey, even if you care, mo even, if you, even if your highest priority is open source and security. That said, there are some limitations in the open source aspect. And when I looked to Yubico for a response to some of these criticisms, frankly, I kind of feel like they're making excuses. But I don't know. Let's break it down and you tell me what you think. So this is from Puri.sm, and it, the title is Introducing the LibraKey. There are many other vendors out there who offer their own security tokens, so why make our own? The first reason is that few security tokens on the market align with our values here at Purism, in particular with respect to freedom. I've explained in a previous post why freedom is essential to security and privacy, and this is essentially true for a device that is holding some of your most sensitive secrets. We wanted a security token that is both open hardware and free software firmware. The free software user applications, and that is why we partnered with NitroKey to produce a security token that respected your freedom from the beginning. Now, Nitro Token, which we, I don't know if we've ever talked, or Nitro Key, excuse me, I don't know if we've talked about this before in the program, but Nitro Key is yet another competitor to the YubiKey. The thing I didn't like about Nitro Key, I, I liked it in principle, but when I had a chance to play with it at Southeast Linux Fest two years ago, I think it was two years ago, I was not impressed at all with the build quality. My YubiKey has, which I wear around my neck, uh, this thing I bought in 2015, so it is 16, so it's four years old, three years old. I can do math, and uh, it it wears around my neck constantly. It gets banged into things. It gets thrown off of ladders. I threw it off a two-story building the other day because I didn't want to strangle myself. And they're they're it's just an indestructible device. They just don't break. The Nitro Key feels like a an assembled device, and it, I, I strongly doubt it would survive one or two falls, much less, certainly wouldn't survive being thrown off a building. I'm not purchasing one to test the theory, though. But I like their concept. I like, in principle, what NitroKey was trying to do. The other thing is NitroKey was just bulky to wear around my neck. So when, they, when I saw that they were basing this off of a NitroKey or working with NitroKey to produce this device, that kind of piqued my interest up. Then I started reading about what the differentiator was to this Librem key to all of the other two-factor authentication. And essentially, what they are aiming for is very much up my alley. Local, non-cloud encryption, decryption, and um, you know two-factor authentication at the local level. So we're not talking about service-based. One of the things that we have to acknowledge with the YubiKey, there are three different modes the YubiKey can work in, two of which I use frequently, which is the one-time password system and the SSH embedded key. Now, the issue, the SSH key is obviously local. That doesn't require any servers or anything like that. But the one-time password system relies on Yubico service. Now, in their defense, you can install their, the code is open, so you can go take their, their open source code and set up your own authentication server and reprovision your YubiKey to point to your server instead of theirs. So you're not locked into their infrastructure, which is why I call it a passable alternative and why I would still suggest that if somebody's out there looking for the best two-factor authentication, you stick with Yubico. All of that said, again, 
I, I like the I like the values that purism has here. So they talk about using the Librem key. They've designed it to automatically decrypt your hard drive when you insert it into your computer at boot time. It'll also automatically lock your laptop whenever you remove the Librem key. Now, when I first bought my YubiKey, this is something I wanted to do. If I if I ejected the key out of the computer, I wanted to, the screen to lock. Now, I was able to do that with some UDEV rules, but it was kind of hacky. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a real good solution. They also support, out of the box, the ability for the Librem key to log you into your computer. And, uh, and that is a question we have taken here on the Ask Noah show more than a couple of times. People have called in and said, uh, can I use a two-factor authentication to both the decrypting the hard drive thing and logging into the computer? And both times I've had to say, well, here's the thing. You can kind of do it with PAM authentication, but it sort of requires network infrastructure to be there. The only other really way to do it is to store an insanely long encryption password on your uh, on your on your Yuba key, but in that case, it's not really two factor. It's really more of like a one fact memorized one factor. And so there's there up till this point, there hasn't been an insanely good option. Now there is. There's the Librem key. Do I think that the Librem key is going to get a ton of market penetration? I doubt it, because this device is not valuable to anybody outside of a privacy non cloud focused uh, world. And to be honest with you, the YubiKey allowing you to open sourcing their software and allowing you to use your run your own servers, I can accomplish the same thing of being off the cloud with the YubiKey. The difference is with the YubiKey, I also support those cloud services if I so choose to. So I can use it to log into my Google account. I can use it to and do use it to encrypt my Bitcoin wallet. These are things that the Librem key is not going to be great at because there really isn't a lot of cloud support. It's really focused local wise. I started doing some digging into YubiKey to find out exactly which parts of YubiKey are open source and which parts are closed source. So from Yubico's own site, the YubiKey hardware with its integral firmware has never been open sourced, whereas all of the supporting applications are open source. The YubiKey Neo, so that's a little thing that, that uh, sits inside of my USB port. I have one right here in front of me on this laptop. The YubiKey Neo is a two-chip design. There is one non-secure USB interface controller and one crypto processor, which runs Java. There is a clear security boundary between the two chips. This platform is limited to RSA with key lengths up to 2048 bits and ECC up to 320 bits. The YubiKey 4, that's the second to latest one that came out, the 5 just came out. The YubiKey 4 is a single-chip design without a Java controller, featuring an RSA key with lengths up to 4096 bits and ECC up to 521. Yubico has developed firmware from the ground up, and these devices are loaded by Yubico and cannot be updated. The OpenPGP applet for Yubikey Neo was and still is published and open source. And then they go on and list all of the open source projects that they have on GitHub. So the TLDR on that is that Key components of the hardware are closed source while the software is open source. And their crappy cockamamie excuse for this is, well, it would be insecure, basically. I mean, we'll have the article linked and you can go review it for yourself. But their basic argument is, well, well, uh, we could we could let you do this. But the, 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 the issue here is we really need to keep the hardware secure. And if we, if we went to open source hardware, who knows what would happen? And I find that to be a, I, I find that to be a farce. I find that to be a, an excuse and a cop out. I can't think of any justifiable reason 
why open source hardware is any less secure than closed source hardware at any time for any reason. If you are confident in the security of your design, you should have no problems with somebody coming and knocking on the door. And if you're not confident in your security designs, then I don't want to use your product. That's kind of the, that's kind of the natural open source guy coming out in me is I'm not happy with their, their excuse because that's really what this entire article is. is it's, it's an excuse, and I don't think there's an appropriate time for it. Closed source is never more secure. We go to our mumble where Rick wants to add something to the conversation. Hey, Rick, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. I think Rick left. Oh, did he? You know, it's yeah, cool. you know, you know, here's the thing. I was pretty Johnny in the spot. He pinged me in the chair. I jumped right in, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you surprised us. So, Michael, I guess since you're here, I just want to pick your brain. You were the one that actually brought this, uh, this, this, uh, this uh, security key to my attention. What are your thoughts on it? You, do, you like the, do you like the idea that Librem is making an open source you know, security key? I like the idea because they're, they're doing something that's interesting in the sense of the, uh, the BIOS head system. That's pretty cool that they're, putting, they're going to the little farther than just a basic uh, security key because now they're basically trying to say if they could do a tampering through the BIOS. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that for a little second. So what he's talking about is Libram in their laptops designed essentially a tamper-proof BIOS so that if somebody intercepts your laptop on the ship on the way in, that nobody can can tamper with that BIOS. And they are designing this security key to interface with that 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 specialized BIOS system so that you can get in there and change your own stuff. Oh yeah. And it's a really cool idea. I, I like the idea that if you just plug, if you when you turn your computer on, you can see it's been tampered with just by having the key apl the pl plugged in. And that's a that's a cool idea. I don't know if I would say that that's enough for me to because it depends on their laptop. I don't know if it would be that's enough to buy the key because there's a, the like the fact that the UB key has the NFC support and stuff like that. Like if the Librem key were to add those kinds of features, that would be really cool. Yeah, or if other hardware manu like if Lenovo or Dell or or System76 or whatever, it came up with a system where you could then use this Librem key to to authenticate into to your BIOS there, then I think it also would make some sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I think they're what they're doing has potential. Like my, it might not be the best right now, but I think it does have a lot of potential and I really like the fact that it's open source and I'm pretty sure it's based on the Nitro key. I think that they have a partnership with they the do, Nitro yeah. key and that, that that's a cool idea to have like like the Nitro key in conjunction with their hardware too. So like if if, if there was some kind of uh, collaboration with other manufacturers, whether it be uh, adding extra features like or just manufacturers with PCs and stuff like that, that'd be really cool. I completely agree. Thanks, Michael, for your opinions. Uh, do you have a yeah. review on that on Tux Digital? Uh, I, I talked about it in one of the episodes of This Week in Linux, but it's not a review yet. Okay, This, Winix, this Week in Linux.com? Well, it's uh, tuxdigital.com slash this week in Linux. Perfect. You want to hear more from Michael Tunnell, uh, check him out at tuxdigital.com, his show this week in Linux. He'll give you his take on the uh, on the security key. But, yeah, in, suffice to say that I just haven't been real impressed with Ubico's response to this. I think that they should open source everything from top to bottom. But, again, and Michael talked about the NFC, right? When you So I secure my Bitwarden, it's hosted on my own server, with uh, my Yubico, with my YubiKey. And so the functionality of NFC means that I can use my two-factor authentication with my phone. And if there's, man, if there is one thing that I have noticed two-factor authentication really falls down, it's authenticating in the, on the mobile platform. It's just very, it's a very difficult thing to do and a lot of people don't. And so uh, when you have two-factor authentication that is difficult to use on a device that is increasingly more and more popular, well, you're really kind of shooting yourself in the foot.
So is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I don't know. I am happy to see another player. I think unlike the Google Titan key, I think the Librem adds a really cool advantage and has and has something unique about it. Wasn't my first reaction, but the more I read about it, and if I'm being honest, the more I see the community respond positively to it, that holds some weight for me. It really does. Again, one 450 no it's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. We are doing a, a really, really cool install at Altaspeed Technologies um, in, in the next couple of weeks, well, next week. And uh, I want to tell you guys about it. I want to talk to you about a little bit what we're doing and uh, some of the cool technology that we're playing with and how you might implement this at your home or at your office. So we got a call from a client and they said, we uh, operate a rural um, small business but it's a very large rural small business. In fact, they're, they're such a successful business. They, they treat people so well and do such a good job that they actually suck business from Grand Forks and they pull them back to their, uh, to their little tiny town that's like 40 miles outside of town. I'll find out if I can, if I can talk about them. Maybe we can even get the owner on for a, for a short interview just from a business perspective. But So what they wanted is they wanted a, a state-of-the-art IP camera system, and they wanted an IP camera system that can track motion, let the owners know where people are. They want to be able to program the cameras to say, during these hours, we want you to, we want to be able to know about movement in this area. We want to record movement in this area, but this area over here, we just really need to be able to see it. It doesn't really need to record. This area over here needs to record all the time. This one, just when there's motion. They want to be able to pull up individual camera feeds on individual machines or on individual smart devices. They want to be able to what we call multiplex or show all of the cameras all at once on one machine or on smart devices. They wanted to be able to download footage right onto their mobile device and send that to law enforcement authorities in the case of vandalism or burglary. And they wanted us to do all of this at a, uh, at a budget-friendly price. That is not an easy thing to do. If you have worked for any length of time in the IP security sphere, then you know that most times a system like that is $10,000, dollars That's not That's not atypical. And uh, they, wanted, they wanted it done at a, at a good price. And so we went out there and we started doing a site survey to kind of figure out where we're going to put cameras and how many we would need and so on and so forth. We quickly realized that this business is so large, they span over four buildings. Guess what? There is no interconnectivity between the four buildings. <laughs> Some of them don't even have internet to them. They're just a, a building out in the middle of nowhere. And the distance between these is upwards of two miles in some cases. So we started looking at it, and uh, I looked at the, the guy, one of our sales guys that was out there with me. I said, man, we got to start a WISP out here. I mean, that's the only way we do this is we, we set up a WISP just for this company. And so we started looking into the equipment that we need, needed to use. Of course, we're going to use all Ubiquity and uh, ordered a couple, of, uh, a couple of demo units so that we could play with them and kind of mock set everything up. And uh, I ordered a couple cameras and I created, we created some IP, uh, one gigabit IP links and put some cameras on them and set up their NVR. And lo and behold, the system is remarkably simple and easy to set up and it's remarkably effective. And so uh, what we're going to end up doing is putting a sector antenna, 100-degree sector antenna, on, a, uh, on their main building. And then at each sublocation, including some street, uh, some city-owned light poles, uh, we're going to put some cameras on there and then put a little, like, electrical Hoffman box. We're going to put some Unify switches inside of those boxes that will power the cameras. 
and the uh, and the uh, IP, IP radio links, and we're going to create a little mini Wisp in this in 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 this city, in the city of Oslo, Minnesota. Now, I am flying in a, a good friend of mine who is, is an ex- industry expert when it comes to IP radio links, and that is Chris DeLuca. He's been on the show a couple of times. He's flying into Grand Forks uh, next week, and uh, he's gonna be out, we're going to be out there all week, and we're going to be working on this project. Now, I debated a little bit if I was going to talk about this on the air, because it's not directly related to Linux, but every time I bring up cool network stuff, people are interested, and... These days at AltaSpeed Technology, I do more of a manager's role. I really only get involved with uh, clients if they're as a favor to a to a, you know an account representative. If they say you know this guy really wants to work with you directly, or he's been working with you for a long time, wants to talk to you, I'll go out and do that. But I try for the most part to to do this uh, to 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 just kind of relink to to let other people do that kind of thing. And I kind of deal with an more administration role. And when I saw this site survey and I was like, basically we get to set up a WISP, like I get to set up an ISP. That is a cool technical challenge and I'm excited about it. Of course, uh, he, uh, Chris DeLuca is nailer in the chat room. So he has uh, drawn attention to himself there. So uh, when he lands, it'll actually be on Tuesday. So we're going to get started Tuesday night, probably after the show, maybe do a little bit of work before the show. And so hopefully he'll be willing to join me here in studio and we'll talk about this a little bit. Obviously, as the chat room points out, he says, seems very relevant to me. Lots of Wisp talk these days. Absolutely. And I tell you what, if you are a believer in net neutrality, if you say, well, there's not enough competition in the internet service provider world, well, here you go. Wisp is your answer to this. And I'm not a cloud guy. Don't like cloud cameras. Don't like, I don't even, my cameras, I tested them on the internet. I have since disconnected them from the internet. I don't want my cameras live on the internet. Ubiquity creates a live encrypted feed from the camera back to what they call the NVR or the uh, or the the the, um, the video recorder, and then from there you can get another encrypted connection out to a client device like a smartphone or a web browser or whatever. Advantage of that is totally encrypted communications. If you don't trust it, just disconnect it from the internet, and guess what? The whole system works because it doesn't require a cloud service. It runs all locally. Oh, you don't want to buy their proprietary DVR? No problem. They give you a DEB, and you just install it on your Ubuntu box, and you can make any server become a DVR. In fact, is one of the things that we're going to do out at this particular place because they need so many cameras. It's a large install. They need so many cameras that the largest DVR that, the, that you can buy directly from Ubiquity is two terabytes, and we want... Hundreds of terabytes. No, we don't want hundreds of terabytes, but we want more than two. And so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to actually use just a regular Dell rack mount server. And uh, that's going to let us, uh, that's going to give us more storage space. But the flexibility to do that is absolutely fantastic. So huge thanks to Ubiquity for making such awesome products. And um, if you guys are, if you guys are, are, are interested in this kind of stuff and judging by the, judging by the chat room, it seems like, seems like you are. If you're interested, send me an email, live at asknoahshow.com. And uh, if you have questions or specific things you want to see, we'll probably do maybe a Facebook Live kind of a thing from there, maybe uh, upload a, a couple little video clips to YouTube of the install and some of the cool things that we're doing and uh, and give you some insight into how we essentially build a... First, we're going to build a little ISP in the city of Oslo, Minnesota. Then we're going to go install all of these cameras. Then we're going to connect the whole thing together. We're going to set up individual networks inside of all these buildings. Should be a cool time. Now... As we wind down the hour of the show, Red Hat has reached out. Steve Ovens from Red Hat has reached out and said, 
we want to contribute back to open source. Red Hat, we care about open source. We care about giving back. And we care about telling people about the cool technology that we at Red Hat are working on. And Steve is an expert in containers and Kubernetes. And I asked him kind of flat out, I just said, give me the elevator pitch, the 30-second elevator pitch of what you need to know to do containers. And so Steve has put together a small little tutorial, a small little uh, get your feet wet. I want to see what you guys think about it. After we, we're going to air this tonight, I want you to give me feedback. Whether you like it or dislike it, let me know live at asknoahshow.com. Here's Steve Ovens from Red Hat. Have you ever been in a situation where you wanted to try the latest software, but you didn't want to set up the infrastructure required just to test it? How about bleeding-edge software that needs libraries that are newer than your system has to offer? Are you a developer or a system admin who has struggled with the phrase, it worked on my machine? Are you looking for a way to deliver a consistent experience with a pet project of yours? Do you want to run several similar pieces of software on a single host, but are worried that they'll interfere with each other? Containers may just be the answer for you. In my role as a consultant for Red Hat, I find myself often explaining containerization to our clients. Primarily, this is because I work with OpenShift, which is a platform built on Kubernetes. Most often, they are trying to solve one or several of the problems mentioned earlier. However, the people I'm often speaking with are not really the technical implementers, and so I normally need to take a step back and explain what virtualization is and what containers solve that VMs don't. Virtualization for businesses is a relatively new technology. While virtualization as a platform has been around for quite some time, businesses were generally very slow to adopt it. Virtualization is kind of a process where you allocate a CPU, some RAM, and disk space to a hypervisor. The hypervisor then presents these resources as if it was an entire physical machine. You can perform an OS installation just as you would on a physical install. Linux is exactly as it would be. There's an init system, there's a kernel, a boot process, and all of the other processes that still happen as normal. A common problem that businesses have is that they purchase these massive machines which largely go underutilized. Virtualization greatly increased machine utilization and density. However, this led to another problem. Since you don't actually have to have all the resources that you allocate to a VM available, people began overcommitting CPU and RAM. For example, you may have had a machine that had eight physical cores. You could easily create three VMs that had four vCPUs each. This led to contention and an introduction of a large amount of complexity into resource planning. Should all of the VVMs start processing a CPU intent and all workloads will suffer? If that wasn't complicated enough, virtualization has overhead in terms of boot time and dealing with drivers, the init system, and all of the other processes necessary to run a full OS. So if you think back to one of the problems earlier that I mentioned, if you're just looking for process isolation, VMs are great, but they do come with a lot of overhead that is not needed or wanted. Virtualization emulates an entire hardware stack. Containers, on the other hand, let the host take care of the drivers, the kernel, and the hardware calls. It only has whatever dependencies are required for the application to run. Containers simply focus on running a single process. As such, 
Containers are nothing more than isolated processes running on the host. If you were to log into the host and use the top command, you would see all of the processes that are running inside of the container listed in top. This level of introspection into a VM is not possible with standard OS tooling. There are obviously pros and cons to these sorts of things, but in today's world where the ability to create a process on the drop of a hat has become vital and people care a lot about boot times and how quickly things can spin up to handle a request. And this has led to containers being used in an ephemeral way, which means that they spin up, they do a job, they complete the job, and then the container completely goes away. Google, for example, uses containers for everything. They create a container every time you go to log into your Gmail and create a new email. Every time you run a new search, a container is created and destroyed. Containers can spin up in hundredths of a second and do their work and then disappear, where a virtual machine may take 10 to 30 seconds to boot up, which is not ideal. So really, the idea of a container is the ability to run multiple processes that are in isolation from each other that ultimately provide portability because in a container you provide all of the necessary configuration files for that container to do its job whether it's apache with all of its apache config and the ssl certs and everything like that shipped in the container whether it's python and all of its libraries bundled together in a virtual omp or any other number of things Containers can be used to provide portability and stability for developers. The idea initially was that if I build a container on my laptop, I should be able to deploy the same container into production. Generally, that can be true. It all depends on the underlying application and what it relies on in terms of kernel features. For example, if you built a container on the newest kernel, say on Arch, and it made use of some underlying kernel function. And then you tried to backport that to say a RHEL 6 or a RHEL 7, or even to a MacBook that has kernel features missing. You'll find that, that the behavior of the container may be a little more erratic. The way around this is to simply provide the build instructions for the container as you move it around. In order to build a container, you have a file which defines the container. Once you run the build process against the file, it generates a container based on all of the instructions that you've provided to it. There are two ways that people normally deploy images. You can either deploy the resulting image after you have run the build command against your definition file, or you can pick up that build definition file and build it on the host that is most close to your production system. Generally speaking, either will work fine, but for complicated projects, the best course of action is to ship the definition and have the system, such as a RHEL box, do the build for you and then deploy out into production so that you can be sure that the image that you have put out into production has all of the kernel features needed to run successfully. And that's really all that containers are. They are a set of build instructions for process isolation. Before containers came along, 
businesses often struggled with variances between developers, where a developer would develop something locally and push their changes, but it wouldn't work the same out in production. And they would say traditionally, well, it worked on my machine. With containers providing the build instructions, you can now be assured that what you ran locally will run in production, provided that you follow a standard operating procedure when you run it through your tests. Again, Steve Ovens from Red Hat. Huge thanks to him for producing that segment for us. If you like it, let me know. If you dislike it, let me know. Um, if there's a lot of interest in it, he says he's willing to do it on an ongoing basis. So we would love to get your feedback live at AskNoahShow.com. Now, in the chat room during while we were playing that segment, the question came up. Um, Naylor actually points out and says, no, I thought you hated Unify switches. Well, I have been a little critical of Unify switches in, in the past. Let me tell you why in this particular install we are using Unify switches. Essentially, at every camera location, we need two things. We need the IP camera and we need the IP radio to link back to our, our main place. Now, we could just use two PoE injectors. The problem with doing that, one, is there's no monitoring or troubleshooting of the network there at that location. And the second and arguably more important thing to me is I don't have the ability to remotely restart the camera or the IP link. If we run that through a Ubiquiti 8-port PoE switch, now we open ourselves up the ability to log into our controller and just tell it restart switch port 1 or restart switch port 2. And that will allow us to uh, restart those things. So that's a great question. I, I wasn't very clear about that. I'm, I was a little inconsistent, but that's that's why we're going that route. And if I had to guess, Naylor probably knows that, and he's asking for your benefit. So I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll put that up. Also, uh, somebody else asked a question in here too. Um, can't find it. Oh yeah, the Raspberry Pi thing. So the other thing is one of the one of the other things that we're doing is the Unify camera system does not really have a way natively to just have a static feed. You can't just view all of the cameras all of the time. So one of the, you can, but it just, it's an RTM feed and over time it kind of drifts and drifts and drifts and pretty soon you're like 24 hours off. Well, somebody, somebody really smart out there has an open source project that turns a Raspberry Pi into a live camera monitor playout system. So with this Raspberry Pi, you simply load the open source software on the Raspberry Pi and, uh, and, and start it up and plug the Raspberry Pi into a TV. Now that TV will become a monitoring system uh, for your Unify camera system. Very, very cool stuff. I don't think we're going to use it in this particular install because all of these guys are really only interested when there's an event that has occurred. They just want to go back, pull the footage, email, that kind of thing. We don't really have to worry about it. But the project does exist, and that's what I like about Ubiquity in specific is that they're, they're very, very forward-thinking when it comes to the maker people, the maker movement and all of that. They're very willing to work with people. People come up with good, good ideas or clever you know, ways to, to iterate on their invention, and they're, they're perfectly happy to do that. Again, uh, one last uh, plug. This is probably the last we're going to talk about this. Our logo competition at Altaspeed Technologies. Make sure to, if you have an entry that you'd like to submit, send that to info, or I'm sorry, logo at altaspeed.com. We'll consider it. And uh, in just a couple of days here, a couple of weeks here, we're going to close that out and, uh, and probably uh, decide on a new logo as our 10th anniversary refresh. Of course, uh, we always invite you to follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. If you want any of the information, all of the articles that we talked about, head over to ask, podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can download the episode or you can check out the, the, uh, any of the show notes. Huge thanks to better producer Sarah, our call screener. We'll see you next week, everybody. Tuesday, 6 p.m., asknoahshow.com.